Tomorrow's Mother's Day, a time to honor the women in our lives who've loved and nurtured us through the years. A lot of us will do that with a greeting card, perhaps one with a pretty picture of a flower on the cover and a poignant saying inside. But what if moms had the chance to write their own greetings? Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In honor of Mother's Day, we asked some moms to write and share their personal essays about motherhood, and that's exactly what we'll be hearing over the next half hour. Everyone talks about the new mom glow, but what happens when what's supposed to be the happiest time of your life feels overwhelming? Jessica Shapley describes how a strong network of support helped her through her early days as a mother. When my first daughter was born, I experienced amazement, joy, fear, and personal self-doubt. It was intense. I suffered with all sorts of lactational issues, extreme sleep deprivation, and postpartum blues. I did not know or understand how universal many of these feelings were. I was fortunate to have a support system. My husband, who was concerned and learning too, and my parents. I had spent a lot of time preparing for the birth, setting up the baby's room, though she didn't sleep in her crib for almost a year. But being home with a newborn was a shock. Initially, friendships changed. Some of my childless friends distanced themselves, or maybe I distanced them. Being home with a newborn was surprisingly isolating, and it was hard to ask for help. I remember feeling ashamed that I should be able to do it all. I feared that if I asked for help, I'd get too used to it. My sleep deprivation, of course, added to the skewed perspective. I was challenged by what to ask for and how to accept the help I received. My lactation consultant, seeing my distress, suggested a postpartum doula. A doula is someone who mothers the mother. She helped prep food, went to the grocery store, helped me with the nursing, held my baby if I slept, and so importantly, provided emotional support. Morsels of wisdom and encouragement came from my doula and from my lactational consultant who reminded me that I was in fact feeding the baby even if it didn't look like I had envisioned. My best friend reminded me on a particularly fussy day that sometimes babies just cry. They don't have many ways to communicate. My pediatrician never made me feel stupid for asking a question and without being alarmist took my concerns seriously. As time passed, the cloud for me lifted. Practice, some sleep, Repetition and an accumulation of good days coupled with breathing, practicing the act of surrendering, and realizing I could only do one thing at a time also helped. But by far, the greatest thing I did for myself in the early months of motherhood was being a part of a mom's group. This saved me. I finally did not feel isolated. Other moms, some of whom also had dark rings under their eyes or spit up on their shirts, became my community. Seeing other babies cry or pull up their mom while nursing or not sleeping made me realize I was not an anomaly, nor was my child. Initially, I traveled out of the neighborhood for the group, but eventually started one in my neighborhood. Local moms gathered, and I craved my weekly connections. Fourteen years later, I am still connected to many of these wonderful women and now teens. While each stage of our child's development is different, it is the early stages of motherhood that feel so foreign. It's often hard to recognize ourselves, and creating a network of support can make a huge difference. Only another new mom knew that if we had a plan, I might be an hour later cancel. They knew not to call past 8 p.m. They knew an invitation meant child in tow. If I was wearing my crying baby, another mom would give me a knowing and compassionate glance. 
My new connections were life-sustaining. As a new mom, isolation is the enemy and friendship is the antidote. Especially with society's diaspora of families, the village we create is often the friendships we build during these new times in our lives. These friendships can come up in all sorts of places, playgrounds, grocery stores, cafes, and new mother support groups. So next time you are out and about with your baby in tow, look up and make eye contact with the other new mom you see. She might become your new BFF. Happy Mother's Day. That was Jessica Shapley. She's clinical director of momsupport.org and the mother of two. Martha Joy Rose was once a housewife on Prozac. Well, not literally speaking. Housewives on Prozac was the name of the band she founded to present what's been described as women-empowered mom-amplified music. Rose is also the founder of the music festival Mama Palooza and of the Museum of Motherhood in Manhattan. She's committed to presenting what she calls herstory in a world she says is too often more preoccupied with history. In search of herstory and the importance of place. My grandfather was a minister. He enjoyed power and prestige in the community. I have a vinyl recording of a special service. He and his brothers, who were also ministers, performed together sometime in the 1970s. During this service, each of them proclaimed their love for their wives, the mothers of their children, and affectionately affirmed how they like their ladies to mm, act like ladies. They jokingly reminded the parishioners that a woman's place is in the kitchen. Think things have changed? Sure, somewhat, but not enough. We still live in a society that limits women and does not treat them equally. I could throw statistics at you, but I'd rather sing you a song, which is why I spent years playing music in a band called Housewives on Prozac. I've been rallying against limiting stereotypes since my childhood. Now, at 57, I'm still trying to make sense of this world. I'm looking around for words, actions, and more importantly, places that offer up introspection and examination of women in general, and more specifically, mothers. We all come from a mother. Why don't we know more about this subject? Isn't it time to add courses in history to our courses in history? There just aren't a lot of high-profile, female-specific, mother-oriented institutions you can go into and explore women's lives and legacies. Well, there are a couple. Here they are, the International Mother's Day Shrine in Grafton, West Virginia, where Anna Jarvis created the first official celebration of Mother's Day in 1908. There's the National Women's Hall of Fame, organized by the women and men of Seneca Falls in 1969 to honor the contributions of great American women. And the Museum of Motherhood was conceived in 2003 as a facility devoted to exploring the evolution of family. These establishments are significant because brick and mortar makes things real. In an essay I recently read called Finding Common Ground, The Importance of Place, the writers acknowledge a sense of rootedness that emerges when community projects come together in a physical location. There is, of course, one day of the year we turn our attention to all things mother. Mother's Day, that special Sunday founded by Anna Jarvis, but it was ultimately condemned by its disappointed founder as a co-opt, commercialized, hallmark holiday rather than a truly profound reconciliation of acknowledgement due our mothers. I suggest that we not only need a profound reconciliation of acknowledgement, but a reconciliation of knowledge itself when it comes to motherhood. 
My grandfather's place was in the pulpit preaching to the masses. My grandmother's place was in the kitchen cooking for the family. My place is in the blogosphere, the radio, or the classroom, anywhere I can find an opportunity to peel back the layers to examine women's and men's roles in the world, particularly when it comes to what I call mother studies. When I look back at my family, I try to imagine my grandmother's quiet servitude elevated to a more public sphere. This would create an opportunity to better examine the value of her work. I keep thinking if we could increase intellectual understanding and historical context for the most important job we'll ever do, it might at the very least encourage compassion, and at its best facilitate the evolution of humanity. A timely meditation as Mother's Day rolls around once again. The differences between women and men. Women think twice and guys think when. Martha Joy Rose is the founding director of the Museum of Motherhood in Manhattan. She's also the creator of Mama Palooza. She has four kids. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarki. With Mother's Day being tomorrow, this morning we're hearing directly from moms in the form of their personal essays. So when is the right time to have a baby? A lot of women struggle with that question. Am I too young? Will it get in the way of my career? Kate Fritkiss of Brooklyn faced those questions and shares her story. When I found out I was pregnant, I didn't really want to tell my friends. We talked about babies over wine and second draft feature articles at a nonfiction writers group, and everyone agreed that if you're smart, you wait until you're 35. There's too much to do before then, said one of the women, summarizing. I was 26 when I got pregnant, which meant I jumped the gun by almost a decade. In a lot of different parts of the country, having a baby in your mid-20s is not a big deal. According to a 2009 report from the CDC, the average age of first-time mothers in Texas, Oklahoma, Utah, and nine other states New Yorkers rarely visit was recently 22 to 23. But the average age of first-time moms here in New York was 26 and 27 in New Jersey, where I grew up. When you account for factors like advanced education, the numbers climb. The Pew Research Center notes that 71% of first-time mothers over 35 are college-educated. Since I arrived in New York City, I don't think I've even met anyone who didn't go to college. In New York City, I only know one other woman my age who has a baby. She'd gone to Harvard and worked on Wall Street, but she once confided in me in low tones, I always wanted to be a mom. I have not always wanted to be a mom. If I've always wanted to be anything, it's a famous fantasy novelist. Dorky, I know. More immediately, I've wanted to get a college scholarship and then get a high GPA and then get into an Ivy League grad school and then have a sparkling career in the big city. I'm not sure about how sparkling my big city career has been, I guess, not particularly, but I made the rest of my goals happen. Until now, the conversations I've had with my friends about babies have sounded something like this. Glamorous, perfectly made-up Mara. My mom is a nurse. She says it's a myth that women are less fertile in their mid-30s. We all nod sagely. Julie, who has just been promoted and is managing 10 people and attending star-studded work parties, I need to spend at least another five years on my career, and anyway, my boss hates pregnant women. Stephanie, who works at a tech startup, five years, definitely. That's the right amount of time. You have to live your own life first. 
everyone else. Yes, me. Silence. I had been married for a couple years when I decided to go off birth control. By then, I was in therapy to try to cope with my career-related anxiety. At my preconception appointment, this is a thing, although I may be the only one who has ever taken advantage of it, the doctor congratulated me for being so proactive and told me to go off the pill three months before I was even thinking about trying to conceive to get the hormones out of my system and allow my body time to readjust. So I did. And then I panicked. I have to finish my book, I told my therapist. Maybe I should wait another year, six months? I think I rushed into this. I'm not ready. But my body was. Two hours after that therapy session, I peed on a stick, telling myself that I was stupid for even taking a test this soon. It said, yes, in very straightforward digital letters. I was already pregnant. I have had many visions of my professional self over the years, but none of them involved children. At six, I decided I'd be a prima ballerina. At 10, when my dad took me to Carnegie Hall, I touched the stage at intermission and swore in a whisper that someday, by the time I was 15, hopefully, I would walk across it to the gleaming grand piano. My mom, a strong-minded feminist, always told me that I could achieve anything I set my mind to. Specifically, she hinted, it'd be nice if I became a lawyer. Or a rabbi, because I had such charisma. I once briefly forgot how to pronounce my own name when introducing myself to a cute boy, but she insisted that I was born to lead. Later, my dad was rooting for me to become a professor, and I did in fact get into a graduate program after my last year of college. My friends were career-oriented and driven, and for all of us, being a young woman was about proving ourselves in a competitive world. Sheryl Sandberg and Hillary Clinton were urging us forward, reminding us of our endless potential, and it was clear that having a baby before fully establishing yourself professionally was exactly the same as giving up on your potential. Having a baby was the kind of thing that my friend's less ambitious sisters sometimes did, much to everyone's long-distance concern. I got married young, at 24. I didn't mean to, but I fell in love in a way that wouldn't compromise. How long do you think people our age should wait before getting married? I asked my boyfriend. He thought about it. Five years, he said. That's ridiculous, I said, surprising myself. He looked surprised, too. Wait, he said. Would you actually consider getting married sooner? I looked down. Well, I said, and I knew I was blushing like crazy. Wait, he said. You would marry me? You have to ask for real, I said. Soon, he did. About five years before sensible people our age might get married, we did it anyway. But marriage isn't anything like a baby. Despite what some people seem to think about it limiting a person's freedom, I felt more available to pursue my career goals and other interests than I ever had before. Without the distraction of dating and with the support of another income, I could push myself harder. You should write, my new husband said. That's what you want to do, so you should give it a shot. Tentatively, I left a job I'd never really liked, and soon I was working part-time and writing every spare moment. I was nervous. I wanted this so badly. Actually, I was nervous all the time. I was also the meanest boss I've ever had. I berated myself for not being more productive, for not being more savvy, for taking a whole day off. I berated myself for never, ever making enough money. One night, after a piece I'd worked really hard on finally went live, I had my first panic attack. 
My heart was frantically trying to escape my chest. I struggled to breathe, and my mind kept insisting that everything was terrible, that everything in my life was shattering and skittering under the couch when it hit the floor. It didn't make any sense. After what had felt like an eternity trapped under a pile of rejection letters, my blog was getting big. I'd signed onto a column, and three literary agents contacted me in the same month. It was beginning to seem like I might survive as a writer, and suddenly, I was terrified that I'd mess it up. The panic attack subsided, but my fear persisted. These were angsty, whiny, first-world problems, I thought, but I couldn't seem to shake them. So I plowed ahead, telling myself that if only I had a big break, if only I succeeded in the way that I sometimes succeeded in my dreams, where Bill Bryson was constantly telling me that he'd read my latest best-selling book and he loved it, then I would feel better. I would finally relax. By the time I turned 30, I swore to myself, I would have arrived. But then something happened. I began to think with an eerie, abrupt certainty that I should get pregnant. At first, I dismissed the urge as self-sabotage. You just won't let yourself achieve your goals. But the changed part of my mind fought back. It said, there is enough time in life for all of this, babies and writing too. Stubbornly, it seemed to imagine that everything would somehow turn out all right, that life had a slower, more graceful arc than I pictured. The part of my mind that relentlessly encouraged me to have a baby sounded reassuringly like healthiness. It sounded like growing up. It sounded like calming down. And I was emotionally exhausted. I gave in. In the middle of the night, during the first trimester, too sick to sleep, I found myself downloading books about infertility. I didn't know why, but suddenly, I wanted to read everything I could get my hands on about and by people who wanted a baby more than anything and couldn't have one. It occurred to me slowly, over weeks, unfurling like my baby's limbs, I wanted someone to explain to me that getting pregnant meant something wonderful and important. I wasn't sure I was allowed to feel proud of myself, and I was a little embarrassed that I did. For my whole life, I'd wanted to stand out and go farther and be more impressive than other people. But on a certain level, becoming a mother is completely ordinary, and only the infertile writers seem to appreciate its simultaneous miraculousness. I can feel my baby kicking now. She prods me from the inside, and it feels like a little reminder every time. I am here too, my baby is saying. You're my mother. And I am warmed and scared by it, but not the same kind of desperate fear I've felt so often about my career. Instead, it's a fear that sharpens me and makes me grateful. After a grueling first trimester, I am back to work on my book proposal, and I've taken on a new column. Sometimes I'm anxious thinking about how I should work harder, I should have a publisher by now. But the anxiety has slipped into the background in a way I never thought it could. The day before my 27th birthday, I had my nonfiction writing group over for cake and conversation. Everyone sipped red wine except for me, and they talked about their recent victories. A cover story, a new job, a book deal. A little awkwardly, I shared my ultrasound photos. Oh my God, they said, uncertain at the sight of my ghostly black and white baby. And then they were all talking at once, reiterating themselves frantically to each other, explaining why they weren't ready to have babies, how they hadn't accomplished nearly enough yet, despite all of their accomplishments, how they just weren't old enough. I think I'm old enough, I said, interrupting. It got very quiet. Finally, Stephanie said, but how do you know? 
I don't really, I said. I just don't want to wait. To my surprise, she said that sometimes she wishes she could have a baby now, too, but she isn't married and wants to get married first. Julie said, Don't get me wrong. I definitely want to have kids. Someday. I don't ever, said Mara, and she looked uncharacteristically nervous. You'll stay friends with me, though, after this, right? I eagerly promised that I would, startled and moved by the reversal of my expectations. I had thought that she would be the one who might leave me, after, when I had been rendered uncool and poopy and distracted by motherhood. Can I touch your belly? someone asked. And suddenly everyone's hands were on me and I felt like the sun in one of those styrofoam models of the solar system, with my friends orbiting my roundness. Their hands were shy but supportive, and I felt important and relieved. Rebelliously, I was impressed with myself. Kate Fridkiss is a nonfiction writer, blogger, and mother of nine-month-old Eden. You can find her online at her blog, eatthedamncake.com. From deciding to have a baby to watching them grow up, Meredith Fine Lichtenberg shares a touching story about letting a child find their own way. At our front stoop, my son would jump from the stroller and run down the sidewalk. It was a game he invented the first month of preschool. He ran away from me and waited. I would pretend to cry, missing him. Eventually, he'd run back to console me with a hug. I think we only played this game for a few weeks, but it left an indelible memory. I would ham it up on our quiet sidewalk, sobbing and wailing. I'd plead, don't leave. After a minute, he'd race back, giggling into my open arms. He'd ask the same thing every time. Why were you crying? I'd say, I missed you so much. We don't play made-up games so much anymore. We listen to music together. We speculate about plot developments in Game of Thrones, the books, not the TV show. We do okay for a mom and her 13-year-old son. But intimacy is more often found in side-by-side enjoyment of hilarious internet memes than big, earnest hugs. A decade ago, starting preschool was hard. Some mornings I had to fold his protesting body into the stroller. Some days I left him crying in the arms of the gentlest-looking teacher, then hid in the vestibule and listened for him to stop. More than once I cried alone on the stoop outside the school. I was so surprised that we both took this so hard I hadn't seen it coming since I had always worked. I had thought we were used to separation already. I was new to parenting. I remember the first time he sang me a song he'd half-learned at school, some song about a fire truck. He got to the second verse and said, How does the next part go? I had to explain that I didn't know. I hadn't been there when he had learned it. Of course, he knew I hadn't been there, but somehow he didn't realize that I didn't still know everything that had happened. As he grasped that, as the look of understanding came over his face, I felt something like heartbreak. He was building a life that I didn't know by heart. We were moving apart from each other. I thought a lot then about how to help him get used to preschool. I probably overthought it. But he was the one who came up with the leaving game, running away from me in the stroller, literally playing out his feelings, watching me pretend to cry, deciding when to run back to my arms. I was delighted. I wish I'd thought of the game myself, which now seems sort of piggish of me. We played for a few days, and then it changed. One day, he ran to the next building stoop. Hey, he called. I'm all the way at 708. He didn't need to point it out. I was already wondering whether it was safe to let him go that far. Next, he ran to the tree even farther, and then he ran all the way to the corner. A New York City block is about 200 feet long. My preschooler had run the whole block and left me squinting through my fake tears. 
I had to fake sob at the top of my lungs now for him to hear me as he stood so far away yelling, I'm all the way over here. What if someone came by right now and saw us, I thought, and then, soberingly, what if he went into the street? Even if I ran after him now, I thought, he had time to dart into the street and be hurt in a dozen gruesome ways. But he had never darted into the street before, not once. He never left my side on our daily walks. He knew it wasn't safe. He knows not to step into the street, I told myself, and I knew it was right. He could be trusted to stay there. Could I be trusted to let him? It's been 10 years since we played the leaving game. He got used to preschool and then big kid school. He learned to cross the street and later to navigate our neighborhood. Last year, wearing sneakers several sizes bigger than mine, he started taking himself to school by subway. I've let him range and come back, and we've both built a tolerance for it more than we had then. But as we near my 14th Mother's Day, I know we're on the cusp of something new. This month, according to our religious tradition, he'll become a man. And though his face is still smooth and his voice still high, he's less and less troubled when I don't know all the lyrics to a song he's learned. Soon it will be him leaving me that causes pain, not the other way around. It's hard to let him go. When we played the leaving game, he was young enough that I could tell myself the game was just for him. I could imagine it was just a way for a little boy who still believed that I made the weather to sort out his fears of separating. But that day that he ran all the way to the corner, I was afraid too. Not just afraid that he'd run into the street, but uncomfortable with how much distance between us felt okay, aware that my own anxiety could clip his wings in a way that made us both unhappy. That day, somehow, I got it right. I remember breathing deeply. I told myself, how nice he must feel, alone and free, knowing I'll hang out here waiting for him to come back. How joyful to stretch his legs and run the whole block. He's just 200 feet away. Let him have that. Don't ruin it for him, I thought a decade ago. And I stayed put and breathed and waited, and my fake sobs were not really fake, and it was really hard. He started running back in just a few moments, but it felt like a long time, and I told him with real tears that I had missed him. He wasn't the same boy who'd left, and I wasn't the same mom. A change is coming soon, a different kind of leaving game that won't be so much a game for him. This time, I expect that the waiting will feel much longer. That was Meredith Fine Lichtenberg. She's a board-certified lactation consultant, parenting expert, and nonfiction writer in Manhattan. Meredith is the mother of two. A version of her essay appeared in the spring 2007 issue of The Mom Egg. For this next segment, I'm reaching deep into my personal audio archives to share an audio essay I produced for a radio production class when I was in college. I was 19 and had a thick Bronx accent. My mother was 40-something going on 19. Congratulations. I'm a very proud mother. When I think of my mother, I always hear her words of love. Then I think of the person behind the words. And actually, it's then that I look at other mothers and ask myself, why must I have a teeny bopper mom? A slight bump on her nose is one of the characteristics that make up her beautiful face. I was dropped on my head when I was a baby, is her excuse for this little imperfection. Her eyes are big and brown. They reflect her warm personality. Her skin does not have many wrinkles. And as mom would say, it's this new EB-5 cream I bought. EB-5 is an age-control cream my mother insists is making her look younger by the minute. She's a very petite woman and is always asking me to get things down from the top shelf. Mom tries to be mod and she is always shopping for the latest fashions. Sometimes this doesn't exactly work out and she will come home from the store with the most ridiculous outfit. 
Well, I cannot I help but laugh as my 44-year-old mother well, asks me, How does this look about something that looks like it should be on a 16-year-old? Hearing my laughter, she asks, I don't look fat, do I? When she hit the big 4-0, she went out and got herself a new sports car. Now, petite and powerful as it reads in the button on her pocketbook, she goes off to work in her candy apple red Fiero. With the sunroof up and her shades on, she's on her way. Quick, quick, pull it out, echoes through the bathroom as mom discovers the gray hair. No, I am wrong, it is a light reflecting off the blonde highlights. To mention the gray word in my house is forbidden. Beneath this teenager trapped in an older woman's body is truly a remarkable person. Mom can always make me feel better no matter what's wrong. Whenever I bring a problem home from school, a bad grade or something, I call her up at work and discuss it. Later, when she gets home, she always hands me a little note of encouragement. Although sometimes she can begin to sound like a Hallmark card. However, these are the things that make mom mom. These little notes always make me feel better. When I used to work over at the supermarket, I would sometimes have nasty customers. I always came home and told my mother about my day and about these customers. One day I told my mother about a man who was throwing grapes at me because they fell out of the plastic bag. A few days later, grapes were being thrown at me from behind the counter. There was mom with a smile. Can you please keep these grapes in the bag, she said. She's always doing something to make me laugh. When she's washing the chicken for that evening's dinner, Come on, there. what are you doing? Getting that pot and under that water is what I hear coming out of the kitchen. She's always so energetic. When I wake up in the morning and hear singing, I know Mom is blow-drying her hair and ready to start the day. That was an audio essay I produced about my mom when I was in college for a radio production class. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. Happy Mother's Day. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.